It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild animals. And the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent ye, and believe the gospel. One of the features of our current uh, culture is that we live in an age characterized by short answers to complex questions. So we have reduced complex issues to the length of a tweet, or whatever you call a post on what's called X now. And we might think that this is unique to our time period, but this trend did not begin in the 21st century. Its roots go all the way back to the dim uh, past. We ought to question the thoroughness of simple answers to even basic questions. We may answer basic questions like, what is the problem with humanity and how we fix it with the simple words like sin and salvation? And there is a truth there, but the entire Bible is God's answer to those questions. Yes, sin is the problem, but defining what it is and explaining why it's the problem uh, is very involved. Yes, salvation in Jesus is the answer to humans, the human problem, but explaining its nature in a way uh, to engender faith is incredibly complex. And so when we come to Mark, we might find uh, justification for our love for simple answers, for brevity and simplicity. We may listen to him as a purveyor of simplistic answers, but that conclusion derives from our anachronistic projection onto Mark rather than what Mark is truly doing. Mark writes a gospel steeped in Hebraic history for Roman Gentile ears, and you might think that this sounds uh, like an impossibility, because doing so requires a complex synthesis of material in a way that explains complex issues for a particular audience. We are coming to the end of what I've called the prelude to the Gospel of Mark, and we continue, as we have last week, to see Mark's Gospel functioning on two levels. We see the Jewish history unlying, underlying these descriptions but also we see the way in which Mark tailors the essential facts for Roman consumption. But in the way that he does so, he doesn't lose any of the vital facts. And in some ways, he emphasizes ideas that we might be missing in a larger recitation. Mark converts Hebrew complexity for Roman complexity in proclaiming the gospel. And he does so not through using Roman cultural frameworks, but by making Hebrew forms understandable to his audience. And seeing both parallel cultures in the gospel, we find more depth than we might have otherwise. We see a greater vision of the Messiah that we might have missed in other gospels. And so let me encourage us to endeavor to find this in the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and the message of Jesus the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, 
and the message of Jesus. We have already learned about the ritual of baptism from Mark's description of John's practice, and now Mark introduces introduces the person that John mentioned in the immediately preceding verses. This is the one coming after John who is stronger with a better baptism. But paradoxically, this stronger one with the better baptism comes to be baptized by John. And so in this event, we need to see why it matters and what it means. For even Roman ears would kind of balk at what Mark tells us in his story. Look at verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. From the very beginning of this verse, Mark uses an expression in Greek that doesn't show up in classical Greek. He begins with, and it came to pass. This is a common, we're, we're familiar with this phrase because we see it all over the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew via he, and it was, or it, and it came to pass. See, Mark can't escape his Old Testament background even when writing to a Roman audience. And perhaps he is, in a sense, preparing them for when they have to read the Old Testament for themselves and begin to see this expression all over creation. Perhaps he's even suggesting that it is wise for them to go back to the Old Testament to see the background for what is going on. Obviously, this Jesus appearing at this point must be the one that John was describing in his previous verses. Everything in Mark to this point has raised expectation of the one to come, from the prophecy to John's practice to John's proclamation that there would come one who was mightier than him. And even the first verse tells us that this is the subject matter of the entire gospel. As you look at verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here Jesus comes from Nazareth and Galilee in verse 9 to be baptized by John. But why? When you look at verse 8 and 9 together, it strikes you as being a problem because in verse 8 you find John saying there is one coming who's got a better baptism. And in verse 9, this one coming who had the better baptism, is being baptized by John. The Christians understood the message of John that Jesus was the sinless lamb, a sacrifice who was going to take away the sins of his people. And so Jesus has no sins to repent of. He needs no washing to make him him clean. He needs no preparation for his own appearance. Instead, Jesus' obedience required doing all that God required of his people. By being baptized, Jesus authoritatively demonstrated that John's baptism was a necessary act of obedience for the people of God. By being baptized, Jesus is saying, yes, what John is telling you about the need of you being baptized in order for you to fulfill all obedience is necessary. In fact, Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, when John asked the question everyone else was asking. You have the better baptism, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. And Jesus responds to John saying, Suffer it to be now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is what needs to happen because I am demonstrating 
I am giving my authoritative imprimatur, if you will, saying that what you are doing, John, is right. That all these people that are being baptized by you, that is exactly what God wants them to do. And as I am going to be identified by God's people, as I, as the Messiah, must obey all of God's requirements for his people, I must be baptized as well. Now, would Mark's Roman audience have seen all this and understood all of this? Well, probably not. They probably had very little understanding of the complexity of Trinitarian propitiation. Even I have trouble even saying that. Instead, what the Roman audience sees as Jesus engaging in this ritual is his signaling his identity as the one that John foretold. They see Jesus identifying with John's practice. They see Jesus identifying with John's prophecy. They see him signaling, I am the one John is talking about. This event marks Jesus as the one promised by the Messiah, described by John, the one stronger than John. If any mental conflict existed as to the appropriateness of Jesus' baptism, the aftermath should remove all doubt. Verse 10, And straightway, coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In verse 10, we have the first use of this adverb that will dominate the gospel immediately, euthus, straightway. That's Mark keeps moving the, the story along. He keeps moving it along with this word, this adverb. To Roman ears, familiar with divine marks of approval from all of their myths, even this could not be more clear. This is God's chosen person. The heavens open. There is uh, authority coming down. This is the one that John describes. This is the one who is stronger than him. This is the one with the better baptism. This is the focus of the entire book. They understand that Jesus possesses divine power as it comes down from heaven and lights upon him. Although the exact nature of that power, probably at this early stage, would be unknown to them. And yet, the nature of that power will become more evident as the book continues. But for Hebrew ears, the statement is filled with Old Testament import. In fact, it sounds impossibly blessed. You see, Mark, when he talks about heavens being open, departs from the other synoptics. In Matthew and John, they use a term, anoigo, which just means to open. Mark uses the term tore apart. In fact, Mark only uses this verb one other time in his entire gospel, and that is in chapter 15, verse 38, when he's talking about the violent tearing of the veil in the temple. The most obvious parallel for this word is found in Isaiah 64.1, O oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. In fact, the other synoptics use the exact same word that is found here in Isaiah 64.1 in the Greek translation. But Mark is using this violent word because he wants, to wants us to recognize that there is something of a fulfillment here. He cannot 
escape hiding in his gospel the reality that Jesus is God's rending of the heavens and descending upon the earth. The descent of the Spirit also features in the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. While many have speculated about the background of the dove, even those steeped in the Old Testament uh, seem to struggle to find traction. Uh, What does this dove mean? Where does it come from? And to be honest, no answer is really all that convincing. The best explanation may combine elements from Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and some connection to Noah's dove. The voice that comes from heaven, naming Jesus in verse 11, uh, describing him as it does in verse 1. He is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son, the heavenly voice says. And we hear echoes of Psalm 2, verse 7, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Some also hear elements of Genesis 22:2, when God calls Isaac to Abraham, uh, the son that you love. There are some who try to make an argument for adoptionism here in uh, this passage, but Uh, they will find themselves disappointed because Mark's description fits what Jesus is, not what this event makes him. What the heavenly voice says is what Jesus is, not what this event has turned him into. He is not adopted in his baptism. He is recognized in his baptism. Whatever we make of John's baptism... Its application to Jesus reminds us that Christian baptism is very different. John's baptism and its efficacy, its purpose, and even mode does not determine any of those factors for Christian baptism. But when we think about how we apply what we see in Jesus' baptism to our own lives, I want us to think about one aspect of this, because we could imagine that Jesus could have said that John's baptism doesn't apply to him. And that is one, because he was the Messiah. He was the, for, he was the fulfillment of John's baptism. And yet he recognizes that this is part of God's law to for his people, and therefore he must go through it. One of the strangest lies the devil whispers into a believer's ear sounds something like, that law doesn't apply to you. If the life of Christ proves anything, it dispels that concept. True, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ and no longer binds us, for for in practicing the rituals of the Old Testament ceremonial law, we are denying the efficacy of Christ's work, especially his work upon the cross. True, the civil law only bound Israel as a theocratic nation-state. But neither of those facts apply to the Ten Commandments, nor to their applications. Obedience to God's appointed authority, even the civil magistrate, still applies to us. This baptism showed the reader that heaven clearly signaled that Jesus is the Son of God. And we know what that means. But the Roman reader might not. You see, the Roman reader, when they first read this, probably lived in a world with many of the sons of the gods. 
And they would be asking the question, what kind of son of God is this? Who is this Jesus? And the rest of the gospel will go into defining and explaining that reality. We see the baptism of Jesus, but secondly, we see the temptation of Jesus. Mark begins showing the nature of this Jesus in the final story of the prelude. Jesus appears in the prelude as one acted upon rather than one acting. A key that reminds us that we are still in the prelude. And here, the Spirit is driving Jesus into the wilderness. We find then what that means and why it matters. As we noted before, the prelude uses rare vocabulary for uh, Mark. And the two words or phrases or ideas that are unique to the prelude, or not necessarily unique, but uh, prevalent in the prelude that are rare in the rest of Mark, are the term wilderness and the reality of the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 12, they both appear together, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. We discover here a strange statement within its context because we already know that John was baptizing in the wilderness. If that is where John was baptizing, then where does the Spirit move him? He's already in the wilderness. Before answering that question, we must recognize that this event represents, uh, presents a period of testing. In ancient hero stories, the hero uh, leaves the familiar area for a wild place to prove his character. And to a Roman reader who would have uh, heard this for the first time, they would understand that this uh, statement, this part of the story, is a part of the hero's journey. He's going off into the wilderness to prove his character. But to the Old Testament, the wilderness was a place of testing. It's where Israel went when they left Egypt. It's where Elijah went when he fled uh, from Jezebel in Jezreel. It's where David lived when he was being chased by Saul. And even the time period tells us that this is a period of testing, as we see in verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days. 40 days. It's uh, the period of testing. And to Roman ears, it might have just seemed like a long time, but to Hebrew ears, we hear uh, the number 40, and we remember Noah. We remember Moses on Sinai. We remember the wilderness wandering. We remember Goliath's taunts. We remember Elijah's journey into Sinai. As a time period that in which God proves what kind of people God's people really are. And what does Mark say about this event? Look at verse 13 again. He was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Mark is cool. Mark is interesting here because he doesn't do what both Matthew and Luke do. Matthew and Luke basically tell us all of the temptation. They have that back, great back and forth between the devil and Jesus. And Mark passes right over it really quick. In fact, it's almost, and one commentator makes this point, you almost don't, shouldn't call these verses the temptation of Jesus because it really doesn't fit. This is Jesus in the wilderness. Because the word temptation only appears once, the word wilderness appears twice in as many verses. 
In the wilderness, Jesus meets two significant challenges. He is tempted of the devil. He is tempted of Satan. And Mark's use of the name of Satan hasn't drawn as much attention as I think it ought to by the commentators. Especially when you consider that he's writing to a Roman audience that don't have the background of uh, that word in their vocabulary because it is a very Hebrew word. Apparently, though, the name must have engendered some recognition in the audience that it refers to the embodiment of evil. And even without that background, his connection with the wild animals should reflect his evil nature. The commentators like to talk about the wild animals, though. If you want, to, if you want some interesting reading, I'll, I'll leave that to your uh, investigation. All of the uh, theories about why the wild animals are mentioned. They don't appear in the other Gospels. And some have gone so far as to suggest that the whole picture represents a second Eden for the second Adam. Uh, one who doesn't succumb to the temptation of Satan. One uh, who, instead of naming uh, the wild animals, is left alone by the wild animals. And while tempting, the picture doesn't fit the audience, nor does it really fit uh, the statements. Because Roman Gentiles wouldn't have seen any Edenic imagery here. What they would have seen is a divine hero sent into the wilderness for testing who returns victorious with heavenly beings as his ministers. What the Romans would have heard from this story of Jesus in the wilderness is here the hero goes into the wilderness and he returns victorious. He returns victorious not only just having defeated all of his enemies, but he returns over the embodiment of evil, the worst evil being ever known, and he returns victorious not just over the wild animals, but also with divine helpers. Mark is... Uh, making this statement and proving the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. What Old Testament background does Mark have in mind when he uses uh, this temptation story? And that has caused a number of uh, questions. And I think the emphasis on the 40 days in the wilderness controls the story and leaves a lot of background for us to choose from. When you think about 40 days in the wilderness, you think about Elijah, you think about Moses, you think about Israel. There's so many options for you to go with. But perhaps Mark has no single reference. Perhaps Mark is seeing Jesus and portraying Jesus as the success of all of the testing in the Old Testament where previous generations failed. Jesus comes back victorious because that is the point of Mark. That he emerges from the story as the victorious, conquering Son of God. He is the one that Mark portrays in this way as deserving of faith and allegiance in him alone. And that message we often miss in our uh, consumption with the questions uh, between the devil and Jesus. Uh, we get bogged down in that whole story and we never recognize the simple fact that we can put into words Jesus wins and we need to remember that Jesus still wins that Jesus still reigns 
Though the point of the story reminds us that nature cannot overcome him, and the worst evil being cannot thwart his purposes. And for us sitting here in the 21st century, we need to learn the lesson that those in the first century probably knew better than we. That whatever goes on in the world, the Almighty Son of God controls all things out of his saving love for his people. And the question that I want to challenge you to consider is do you believe that? That Jesus wins? Do you believe that when you watch or read the news? When you look back on this year, do you believe that? When you consider the future, do you believe that? Are we willing to put aside our prejudice, our presumption that we understand the world better than the Bible, better than God, to believe what the Bible tells us about King Jesus, the Son of God? We see the baptism of Jesus, Jesus in the wilderness, and finally the message of Jesus. Actually, when you think about it, the prelude of Mark ends in in verse 13. And yet I want to begin the gospel proper with the introduction of Jesus' ministry because it sets the tone for the rest of the gospel. These two verses sum up not just what Jesus is teaching and proclaiming as he enters into his earthly ministry, but also it emphasizes what Mark wants his reader to understand and believe and has to do with evangelism and eschatology. Mark seems to delight in the strangeness of his gospel. For a victorious hero, his predecessor's fate seems rather odd. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The signal for Jesus to begin his own public ministry is John being put in prison, John's arrest. That's just weird. And perhaps some have speculated that Mark is foreshadowing Jesus' own fate this early. But it always it should it would have caused people to scratch their heads like, all right, this is the, the forerunner. Things are supposed to be going forward, advancing, and now John is being put in prison. And Jesus begins his work in an interesting location. Look at verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee. Now, before we just rush in with our uh, understanding of the history of all the other Gospels, remember where Mark left Jesus in the last verse. Jesus went down to where John was ministering in the wilderness in the region of Judea, far to the south. He went into the wilderness, probably further in the south. And now uh, Jesus has returned all the way back to Galilee. You see again the kind of Uh, way that Mark ignores uh, Judea and Jerusalem. He's giving the Romans a geographic marker that uh, he is not in Judea, he's not in Jerusalem, and yet Mark will bring Jesus to Jerusalem soon enough. But for now, Mark wants to focus on the message that Jesus brings to the people and to Mark's readers, a message concerning the kingdom of God And that message involves what we call Old Testament eschatology, or the vision of the last days in the Old Testament. As you see in verse 15, 
and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus proclaims that the time is near, that the kingdom of God is near. This phrase points to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, the other expressions of the last days in the Old Testament. To the Roman Gentile audience who may not have heard about uh, the Old Testament eschatology, uh, they would have been a bit curious. They had their own eschatological hopes. They had their own idea of an impending doom, but this was different. This was the announcement of a coming kingdom. And to a uh, Roman audience, the coming kingdom would be rather a strange and curious and maybe frightening ask, uh, uh, thing to think about. After all, what kind of kingdom is this? They'd never heard of it. They'd never heard of a kingdom rising up in Israel, at least not at this point. They heard about uh, rebellion and, and uh, arguments going on in the, in the province of Judea. But they know of no king. What kind of kingdom is this that has no political boundaries or apparent government? And who is the king of this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? Well, the nature of that kingdom appears in Jesus' proclamation and what he urges the people to do. He calls the people to repent and to believe the good news. The good news he is referring to here must be uh, the nearness and the nature of the kingdom. And repentance and faith signal the nature of the kingdom not as political, but as spiritual. The Roman readers might not understand it yet, but Mark sets this imperative first as the object for his book. This is what he wants the readers to do. For you to understand this, my friend, I'm going to allow me, if you will, to spoil a nearly 2,000-year-old book for you, which you, if you haven't read it before, uh, you're on your own. You, your spoilers are just uh, accepted. Jesus established the kingdom of God in his life, death, and resurrection. What Jesus was proclaiming in this kingdom was his own person and work, his rule. He set up a spiritual kingdom to represent deliverance from sin. Sin, that state in which we find ourselves by birth and by choice. We are guilty before God and unworthy of being in his presence or in his kingdom. Yet Jesus is God, the Son made man, who lived a sinless life, who died as the sacrifice for human sin, who rose from the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords over the kingdom of God in fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. And so he reigns forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. But you may only participate in that kingdom by faith, by believing the message of the kingdom, by believing that what Jesus did, he did for you. Jesus said, repent, turn, change your mindset, change your uh, behavior to accord with your new identity, your, the identity of those who believe. Have you believed in Jesus? Christian, we believe in the already and the not yet. 
that the kingdom has already begun in the first coming of Christ. But the kingdom is not yet what it will be when he returns. And we live in that tension. We have entered a rest, but there is a rest remaining. And no place and no event better exemplifies this for us than gathered worship. We draw near the presence, thankful for the rest we have, the blessedness that we enjoy. And yet in the peace of that rest, the joy of that blessedness, we yearn for the rest that remains, the physical presence when we will be with our God. This is where we come to experience the already and to long for the not yet. This is the place we come to remember what Christ has already done for us, to enter into the presence of God, to experience that blessedness, and yet still want more. It's it's the place we come to remember that we do hunger and thirst after righteousness, a hunger and thirst that can never be fully satisfied on this earth, but can only be fully satisfied in heaven. It's like when you are so hung, you, you, you've not eaten for so long, you are no longer hungry. And when you start to eat, you be, realize how famished you really are. That's what church is like, because we live in this world where our souls are so depleted that we forget that we are even hungry. And then we come to this place and we taste the good things of the Lord, and we know that our soul cannot be satisfied with anything but Him and anything than heaven where we will be before our King of kings and Lord of lords, for the kingdom of God has only one head, and it's not you and it's not me. Jesus rules over his church. And that is such a grand idea, that he is the king. It liberates us to live in community. We don't have to play follow the leader We are free to share our blessings and our hope. We are free to love and hope with one another. It breaks the slavery of striving for preeminence. Do we not see that throughout all the rest of the world, all of this striving for preeminence, a striving for uh, headship and rule? Well, we have one king, and he is Jesus, and it liberates us to love and care for one another. For those who truly grasp the kingship of Jesus, We are able to be content to grow where he has planted us, to enjoy the service he has assigned to us. Instead of striving for our own glory, we may rest content in the light and the glory of the Son. Let's pray together. Sovereign God, we pray that you would hush our rebellious hearts Remind us of our peace and joy. O Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Commit our hearts to obey all your law, to believe all your word. And fill our eyes with the heavenly kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.